The following audio is from All Saints Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website at allsaintsgb.org. Our New Testament reading comes from Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, The place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. God, we thank you for your word. God opposes the proud, James 4, 6 says. God opposes the proud. I want to ask all of you this question this morning. Where did you face opposition this week? Where did you face opposition this week? Maybe you were opposed by a friend disagreeing with you about the path you're taking or a decision that you're making, like where or how to raise or educate your child. Maybe you were opposed by a masterful enemy deliberately trying to put an end to something you've started like a boss or a parent shutting down something you worked hard to make happen. Or maybe you were opposed by an inanimate object that refuses to do what you want it to do like a jar lid or a plugged toilet. Where were you opposed this week? Where were you opposed? But an even more curious question is this. What was your response to that opposition? How did you respond to the opposition? My kids are often a witness of sinful responses from their dad, but they had to witness a response from their dad a few weeks ago when I was installing our new dishwasher. The final screw. The final screw. It's always the final screw. Beneath the counter that holds the dishwasher in place, it hated me. It opposed me, that screw did. It became so against me. And the volume and the vocabulary which came out of my mouth revealed something about me and about my response to opposition. It's this. I don't often believe that God is the master of the universe. Instead, I believe I am. You may think that that conclusion over a dishwasher is a big stretch when we're talking about like a small piece of hardware failing to go through a piece of wood, 
But I'm not talking about the hardware. I'm talking about the hardwiring of my heart, of your heart, of every hard-hearted response to opposition. When someone opposes you, what is your first instinct? What is your first response? Let me ask this. Who's right when you're opposed? You are, right? Who's wrong? They are. When someone blocks you from being able to do something you wanted to do, even if it's with the purest of motives, what happens between you and that person? You block them. What happens oftentimes, too, between you and God? You blame Him. Opposition shows us where our confidence is found. Often confidence is found in ourselves and in our inability to fail. We've got the most accurate view of things. Often it's found in our circumstances. Our confidence is found in our circumstances. If things are going well, then you must be on the right track. Often our confidence is found in our cell phones. If I don't know the answer, then surely Wikipedia does. But could opposition be the very thing God uses to show you where your confidence lies? How do you make God laugh, some say? Make a plan. I would edit this a bit. How do you make God laugh? It's believing his plan will never fail, even if it involves opposition. The master's plan never fails, ever. So we need to serve him with master-filled confidence. Say that again. The master's plan, it never fails. So we need to serve him with master-filled confidence. What does master-filled confidence look like? The three primary descriptions we see in the life of the people of God in Acts 4. Three descriptions which must become a way of life for the people of God found at All Saints Presbyterian Church. These three descriptions are this. Number one, praying like our life indeed depended upon him. Number two, standing on the start and the finish lines of faith. And number three, waiting for the Spirit's power to switch on the lights. First, master-filled confidence looks like praying as if our life depended upon him. We see this in verses 23 and 24. Peter and John and maybe even the healed lame man are heading back to their friends, to the family of God, the church, after a night in jail. They've been threatened that if that name Jesus comes off of any of their lips ever again, hell will pay. They know that what they heard, the threats they heard from the Sadducees, from the Pharisees, from the temple guards, from the Gentiles, from the religious leaders, they know this is deadly opposition. Because this same court that told them this, that threatened them this, these chief priests and elders, these same people crucified Jesus. This is not a slap on the wrist. These men, these temple officials, there's a hammer and there's a nail in their fists. How might we, the masters of our own fate, who find confidence in ourselves or in our circumstances or in our cell phones, face a situation like Peter and John were facing? 
when the church was facing. Well, we might, we might start maybe working out to buff up a bit, and we're going to work out an overthrow of the temple, people. That's what we're going to do. We're going to get in there. We're going to take names. Or we might just plan to leave this chilly town of Green Bay with our tail between our legs saying things that, you know, surely it'll be better and more conducive for us in a warmer climate than here. Or we might get out our phones and record all of the threats that they're making to us so we can post it on social media and raise a stink so that people will get on our side and get in our corner. You see what they did to us. Or at least we text our three closest friends to say, can you believe what our pastors did? What does the church do instead? Verses 23 and 24. What do they do? They pray. With one mind. They pray with one mind. This is not a mind meld where they're saying the exact same thing at the same time. One mind means that they're praying unanimously. They're praying without opposition. No one in the church is saying, let's go after them or let's get out of here. Instead, everyone is in agreement that the only necessary place to go in this life-threatening moment is to the master. That's what they do. They pray with one mind to the master. And this is how they address him at the beginning of this prayer in verse 24. They don't call God Adonai, which is the word for Lord. They don't call him Yahweh. I am the Old Testament word for Lord. They don't call him Jesus. What do they call him? You see it in your translation, it says sovereign God. But the Greek word is despotes, which means master or owner it's a word a servant or a slave would use to address their master. And before we get all riled up at that term and make it about dominance and submission, we have to remove our cultural biases from that word and see the accuracy of that term owner and master. And you see the accuracy of it and how they clarify what it means in verse 24. In this opening doxology of their prayer, what do they call him? They call him master, and then they say, the maker of heaven and earth and the sea and everything in those places. Friends, if someone made everything that exists, what better term to use than owner, master? This is all yours. And what better posture for the church to face opposition than for everyone to take their concerns to the only one who can really do something about it. The only one who has control over it. Master. Tim Keller and his wife Kathy, whom I affectionately refer to oftentimes as our denomination's patron saint. He has been diagnosed with both thyroid cancer and stage 4 pancreatic cancer. And what has changed most wildly for Keller since cancer is his prayer life. Listen to what he says about prayer. To pray is to accept that we are and always will be wholly dependent on God for everything. Do you hear master language in there? And then he says, to fail to pray, to not pray then, is not to just break some religious rule. It's a failure to treat God 
as God, as master. He says this, my wife and I would never want to go back to the kind of prayer life and spiritual life we had before the cancer. Never. Knowing you are really going to die changes the way you look at your time, the way you look at your God, the way you look at your spouse, the way you look at the world. Friends, we must see that the master is in charge. He doesn't fail in what he does. Even when we pray for something that we don't see happen, our prayers are revealing a trust in a power and a person always greater than the heavens, greater than the earth, greater than the seas, greater than everything that's in it. This means that our prayers must be bigger than our plans. Our prayers must be more important than our prospering. Our prayers reveal our position before the master. God opposes the proud and he opposes the prayerless but he gives grace to the humble servant who call upon their master. Friends, our season of Lent, as I mentioned earlier, begins on Wednesday with our Ash Wednesday service, where we begin by remembering we're all going to die. But we're also preparing ourselves for the season in which we remember that the master didn't fail because death actually fell with resurrection. Throughout the Lenten season, as an application, we're going to be including in your worship guide scriptures and the practice of Lexio Divina, which means prayerful reading of those scriptures to use in a time during your week as we can gather together individually in unanimous prayer as a church. Maybe consider trading the time spent on a Netflix program with master-filled prayer. Consider filling your time in your home project with the master-filled prayer. Master-filled confidence looks like praying as if our lives depended upon Him. Secondly, it means standing on the start and finish lines of faith. We see this in the prayer in verses 24 to 30. The people of God, in their prayer, addressing the Alpha, the Master who was there at the beginning. There's a confidence in the maker of all that is, the one who is in the beginning. And then at the end of the prayer, in verse 28, we see a confidence in the finisher, the omega, to work his perfect will. See what they pray in verse 28. They pray that the master would do all that your hand and your will had predestined or determined from the beginning to take place. When we face opposition in the middle and in the muck of our lives. It's hard for us to see the beauty of the beginning and even harder to believe in the certainty of a good ending. All we want to do in being masters of our own fate is just manage the middle and manage it as tightly as we can. We become masters of our middle, minuscule world. And friends, it's foolishness. See the foolishness of kings and priests and pastors in Psalm 2, which is quoted here, in trying to outmaster the master. King David, who was inspired by the power of the Holy Spirit, predicted what happens to kings and leaders who try and stop the starter from finishing his work. See it? Why do the nations rage and the people conspire against the Lord and against his Christ? 
It is vanity, verse 25 says. It is empty. It is of zero benefit. It is a lost cause and a waste of energy to try to stop the finisher from finishing his work. And it's interesting that King David quoted that because King David very much experienced that in the beginning of his rule. As he faced the opposition of Goliath. Goliath, a guy who found his confidence in his present tense posture. He was probably about the height of that cross. He was made by the maker to be a big guy. And he managed his middle world, this Goliath. He became master of his own faith, fate through intimidation, through threats. Much like all the Gentiles and the Jews who are going after the church is doing here. But David... Little David, as he faced this tall Goliath with a confidence in the starter and the finisher of his faith, was able to show that man and show the rest of humanity the foolishness of coming against the Alpha and the Omega. He shouts to Goliath his opposition. You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of every army. God opposes the proud. Boom, Goliath falls, but gives grace to the humble servant. Friends, when you think of the opposition that you're facing today, how much of it is actually for your good? To take your feet from standing on the sinking ground of making much of this middle and to plant your feet on the author and the finisher of your faith. What if the opposition you're facing is coming from God who is attempting to remove you from the throne and remove you from the foolishness and pride of being your own master? A friend of mine once wisely said to me, Chad, it's better to ask God for humility than to be completely humiliated. Humility is about trusting the author is writing a story even in the midst of opposition whose ending you will someday see and someday celebrate. Even if you can't right now. Jesus for the joy set before him endured that cross. The joy of seeing the finish line in which humble servants who gave up being kings and rulers of their own little lives offering themselves as servants to the one who sacrificed his own life. He saw that joy coming. The master plan of saving sinners was carried out with the use of opposition. The temple officials, they saw the cross of Jesus as an opportunity to shut his mouth. And Jesus saw the cross as the opening of the kingdom of heaven's gates. And his cry from that cross of, it is finished, became only the beginning of eternal life. We may have among us today, those of you who are discouraged, those of you who are depressed, those of you who are despairing. And I kindly and hopefully gently say this to you this morning. Your eyes are too much on the present and not enough on the beginner and ender of everything that was made. 
I would encourage you to tattoo on your heart and on your, in your head these four words which have the power to humble the most powerful kings and to encourage the worst suffering servants. And these four words are these. This too shall pass. In the middle of true opposition and true oppression, the kind in which the enemy of your soul and any enemy of Jesus is threatening to take you down, ask the author and the finisher to do what they prayed in verse 29. Look upon or oversee these threats that are coming from these enemies. Like the author and authority that God is. Look upon their threats. Let the master be in charge of even evil schemes. But what's really cool about the church you see here, they're not at all passive in being all about predestination and about what God wants. We're not the frozen chosen here people. No. They and we pray, give us the confidence, the chutzpah, the courage to open our mouths and declare the good news of the gospel of Jesus. That's what they pray. Let the word who became flesh, who died for a sinner like me, who was raised so I could live, who will come again to oppose the proud and give grace to the humble, let him be the word in which comes off most my lips. But not just words, verse 30 promises. Deeds as well, as the Master uses us, the church, to bring the healing love of Jesus, the restorative work of Jesus, to every place we're led, even if it be a cross. Master-filled confidence means praying like our life depended upon Him, standing on the start and finish line of our faith, and finally, waiting for the Spirit's power to switch on the lights. Verse 31 closes with a theophany. We saw that in Exodus. What's a theophany? It's a God appearing. As they feel the earth move under their feet, the shaking goes on. What is this all about? It's the same shaking that went on when the people of God received the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. The earth shook. It's the same shaking which occurred when Jesus breathed his last on the cross. The earth shook. The quake is the master and the maker's way of saying, I am right here. And where the master is, the servants become masterful as the power of God, the spirit of the living God, grants them what they ask for, courage and confidence. Do you see that in the last verse? Courage and confidence to declare the word of God. Saints, we are all way too timid of servants. The gospel of Jesus doesn't come off of our lips because we're afraid of oppression. We're afraid of being opposed. Let's pray. The Spirit turns on the lights, gives us more and more juice and power to confidently speak and display what Jesus the Master has done for us. Like the mast of a ship displaying a flag of belonging, Holy Spirit, raise our flags to who we belong. John Guest, I'll close with this, went to hear the evangelist Billy Graham in 1954. And in Graham's talk that evening, he spoke about nailing our colors to the mast. 
It's a phrase used in the days when sailboats were the military vessels of the day. Your color was your flag flying from the mast. So when the man in the crow's nest way up there saw an enemy ship, he would often call to have, have that color lowered so that the enemy couldn't spot them, couldn't spot the color and then blow the ship out of the water. But when you nailed your color to the mast, when you nailed it on there permanently, you were in effect saying, come what may, this is who I am, this is my commitment if an enemy ship came over the horizon that wants to blow me out of the water, that is up to them. My colors are nailed to that mast. And Billy Graham, in the power of the Holy Spirit, said, I'm asking you, those of you who for cowardly reasons have not nailed your colors to Christ, to do so now. And John, guessed by the same power of the Holy Spirit, surrendered his life and nailed his colors to the master that evening. May we all saints nail our colors to the mast and to the master. This is who I am. I am a sinner made son by the predetermined will of my father. This is who I am. I am a servant saint of the living Jesus who served me by giving his perfection to me in exchange for my sin and who rose again so that death, the opposition of death, is defeated. This is who I am. A spirit-filled servant whose only power to understand, to speak, to preach, to live for Jesus is given to me from above. My heart and my flesh, they're going to fail, friends. Your heart and your flesh, they're going to fail. but your master will not. Let's pray. Father in heaven, sovereign God, master and owner of all that is, take our lives and let them be set apart. Nailed to you, our master, who never fails. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.